Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Coffee, Crime, and Storytime. It's me, Danielle. Summer has arrived, and I am officially a happy camper, except for the fact that I'm melting away and refuse to turn on the air conditioning. I'm not looking forward to the bill. How long do you guys wait to turn it on? Do you do it right away, or are you a holdout like I am? Well, anyway, I am all right because I've got my iced coffee ready, and guess what? I also have another story ready for you, too. Today, we're talking about Jennifer Pan. It's Monday night, November 8th in 2010. 911 receives a call from a young woman. She is frantic and crying and asking dispatch for help. The call is hard to hear as she is speaking while the dispatcher is speaking and there's screaming and yelling happening in the background. Police arrive to find Hui Han Pan outside and Jennifer, his 24-year-old daughter, is bound upstairs to a banister by a shoelace. It was she who had made the 911 call. Han is taken to the hospital. Jennifer tells police what happened. She says that multiple people broke into the house, demanded money, and tied her to the banister, and then attacked her mother and father. She knew she heard gunshots, and she heard her father run outside while she was making the 911 call. Becca, her mother, is found in the basement, covered by a blanket with a gunshot wound. They can tell that she's already deceased. Initial investigation by police determined that there's no sign of forced entry, no shell casings, no fingerprints, nothing. Jennifer is cleared by the hospital and taken to the station to give her actual statement. She states the night was normal. Her mom had gone line dancing, her father was home, her brother Felix was away at school in Hamilton, Ontario, and she was in her room watching TV. Just a typical evening, like I said. She says she heard her mom arrive home somewhere in the area of 9 o'clock, but she didn't go down to see her because she was falling asleep. She then woke up suddenly, and she wasn't sure why, but from her bedroom, she could hear her mom calling for her dad to go downstairs. And she could almost kind of see from her vantage point as well. She turned her TV down and she could hear that there were other voices in the house speaking to her mom. She froze for a moment before trying to get closer and find out what happened. At this point, a man who was standing right outside her door came at her holding some kind of string in his hands. He told her he had a gun, she was to follow his orders, and she was bound with her hands behind her back. He asked her about money, and he dragged her around upstairs, asking her again and again. She told him where to find her savings she had in her room, as well as some money she knew was in her mom's dresser. She was brought down to the kitchen, where two more men had her parents at gunpoint. She said at one point, one of the men hit her father with his gun. Her mother was crying and pleading, and she was then dragged back upstairs and tied to the banister. She then realized that her cell phone was tucked into her waistband when she had fallen asleep. So she somehow managed to get the phone out and dial 911. 
The description she gave of her attackers is as follows. One was a black male, about 5'5 to 5'7, medium build, and had long, dreadlocked hair. He was about 28 to 35 years old. Next was a thin build black man, early 30s, same height as the other, but his face was covered with a bandana and a dark hoodie. The third was a black man, thin build, who spoke with a Caribbean accent. She had no reason that she knew of why someone would attack them, but figured people probably thought that they had money or maybe wanted her parents' vehicles. But these three men were not very good at robbery because they left the cars, they left the electronics, they left money laying out, they left her mother's purse on the counter. Security footage shows a silver Acura parked outside the house and left quickly right around the same time of the incident, but the owner of that car comes forward and is quickly ruled out of the suspect list. Police then speak to Jennifer's boyfriend, Daniel Wong, and this leads police to speak with Jennifer again. Their main question, how did she call 911 while being tied to the banister? Now, I'm not gonna lie. That was literally my first thought when I heard this story. I mean, if your hands are tied to a banister and you were still tied to the banister when the police arrived, how in the name of mayonnaise did you manage to call 911? So anyway, the police basically ask her this, but instead of asking her to explain, they ask her to show them and she can't, not really. She tells them her upper arms were tied to the banister and then her hands were tied behind her back with shoelaces, but she could wiggle to get the phone out of the waist of her pants and shout to the dispatcher. But she never had any bruising or chafing. And if you're wiggling around and you're struggling, you think that that would be present, right? The next thing that bothers police is that if they shot the mother and they shot the father, why didn't they shoot the daughter? Morbid, I know, but it's a good point. If you've already killed two people, I mean, however, the other side of that is obviously they weren't really good at robbery either. So another flag to police is something Jennifer tells them about her boyfriend. See, her parents highly disapprove of her dating Daniel. She'd been told basically she had to choose between her parents or Daniel, and she tells police she chose her parents. But then we discover another lie. Another reason Jennifer lives at home is due to college. But she tells police she hasn't gone at all. She just told her parents she was. So obviously we've got a really sketchy relationship between the daughter and the parents happening. But of course she tells police she had nothing to do with it. She leaves the station. But what she doesn't know is that she's leaving while being kept under surveillance. Jennifer attends her mother's funeral, and police notice that she doesn't show very much emotion. This is a red flag for them. Now, I'm going to say this, and I can't say this enough. Grief is different for everyone. Just because someone doesn't react the way you think they should, doesn't mean that they aren't grieving. 
However, I'll also agree that some behavior can come off as suspicious. Then, Han is now awake from his coma, and he's finally able to speak. He hadn't been able to be interviewed right away due to being shot in the shoulder and shot in the face. Sadly, he wasn't even able to attend his own wife's funeral. And he tells police that he remembers every moment. And he tells them a tale that is terrifying. It agrees with the beginning of Jennifer's story. He was asleep about 8.30 and that he was also jolted awake by a man in his room pointing a gun at him and asking for money. He states he was pulled out of his room where he encountered the shock of his life. His daughter Jennifer was standing in her doorway and speaking quietly to one of the intruders. Not tied up, not struggling and screaming, having a quiet and calm conversation with him. The man forced him downstairs where he finds his wife seated on the sofa with another man behind her with a gun to her head. Beck and his wife were taken to the basement and his wife begged for their daughter's safety. He told police that one of the men replied to his wife's pleas by saying, quote, don't worry, your daughter is very nice, so I won't hurt her, end quote. He then states at this point he blacked out, and this is because he had been shot in the face. When he awoke, he was bleeding, and his wife lay beside him dead, so he ran from the basement screaming, and that is the screaming that you hear on the 911 call. And the police can feel it. Their suspicions are correct. They need to arrest Jennifer as a suspect for her mother's murder. She had been part of the plan. Now, she doesn't know that she's the prime suspect at this point, so police call her back for a third interview on November 22nd. They ask her to walk through the evening again. And after about an hour in, the police change gears. They start telling her what they think actually happened. And they continue to seek the truth from Jennifer for hours. Eventually, Jennifer breaks, bending in the chair, and raises her head and begins to speak. But she states she hired the men to kill her, not her parents. She had offered a man called Homeboy two grand to come into her home and kill her. She had left the door unlocked for them. Police, of course, don't believe it, and she is arrested for murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. The police begin to determine the catalyst for it all. Hui Han Pan and Beka Pan were immigrants from Vietnam. They think the pressure placed on Jennifer to succeed and controlling her relationship caused her to snap. She had had a very stressful and regimented childhood, which in her young teen years caused her to forge her report cards and even ended in self-harm. She was pushed to be the best at everything with no free time. The phrase tiger parent gets thrown around, but I'm not part of that culture and I'm not going to speak into it, but it's something to think about. Jennifer actually never graduated from high school. She had missed it by one credit, but she's managed to forge and hide everything. And then she told her parents she was enrolled in college and 
again, all forgeries, all lies. Instead, all of her time was spent with her boyfriend, Daniel. But Jennifer's parents had found out. And this is where the us or your boyfriend ultimatum had actually been delivered. But see, Jennifer's lies didn't stop at her parents. They extended to everyone. When Daniel and she had broken up at one point, she told Daniel that a group of men who were dressed as police managed to get in her house and trigger warning here, skip for a second if you're sensitive. Um, they managed to get into her house and gang rape her and that his new girlfriend had sent them. She also told Daniel that his new girlfriend mailed her a bullet in an envelope as a warning. She told friends that her father had a private investigator to follow her. None of this was true. She was lying to everyone. Police work to find the men involved in the plan, and they locate David Milvaganum, Eric Carty, and Lenford Crawford, who are all charged with the same charges as Jennifer. And the facilitator of it all, the go-between man who arranged everything, Daniel Wong, who was also placed under arrest for the same charges. Trial begins March 19th, 2014, and lasts for about nine months. All five are being tried together for murder and attempted murder. Jennifer is found guilty of murder and attempted murder and sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 25 years served before parole. Daniel, Lenford, and David are also found guilty of murder and attempted murder. Eric pled guilty for conspiracy to commit murder, but he was already serving another murder sentence. So he got an additional 18 years on top of his current sentence, and he actually died while incarcerated in 2018. Jennifer's father and her brother's lives have been forever changed. And regardless of upbringing or standards or expectations, this is not the outcome that anyone should seek to result. The problem was the environment and all its players created the perfect storm. So, what do you think? Tell me your thoughts on the case. I'd love to hear them. Or, if you have another story you'd like to tell me, or one you'd like to hear, email me at coffeecrimestorytime at gmail.com. The podcast can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and TikTok. There's also a Patreon page set up. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the podcast with donations so I can keep it coming at regular intervals. Ratings and reviews are also extremely appreciated. I am off to research our next episode, but maybe a run to Starbucks first. And as always, until next time.